Good morning. You guys doing well? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, Old Testament book. We've been working our way through the book of Nehemiah. We will work through that whole chapter, 23 verses. This is our Rebuild Teaching Series, and we're going to talk about opposition this morning. Let me bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us thus far in this, uh, this particular teaching series. You guys remember uh, what Nehemiah is, what he does for a living? He's a what? He's a cupbearer for the king. He's one of the many Jews that were scattered after they were defeated. Uh, some 100 years earlier, the, the Jews were scattered throughout the ancient world because they were defeated. And since then, they've had a couple opportunities to return back to their homeland, the land of promise, and rebuild. It hasn't been going well. Uh, certainly, Nehemiah was overwhelmed with grief. Because of that, he began to really seek God, pray. God has now given him opportunity to return to the land and begin the rebuilding process. Now, the rebuilding here is a picture of God rebuilding our brokenness. And returning to the land of promise, the land of milk and honey, is the fullness of life that Jesus Christ gives to us. It's a kind of a picture of that. Now, here's my question for you as it relates to opposition. Now that they're in the land, they're being, beginning to rebuild, and they're facing unbelievable opposition. As, as we saw when he first came Step foot in that area, he had a lot of opposition, but now the opposition, the heat has turned up tremendously. And so here's my question for you. What is Satan's most effective vice against you? You don't need to answer that out loud. Just what is Satan's most effective vice against you? Is it pride, anger, envy, lust, greed, gluttony, laziness? I don't think that there are any of those, actually. I think that there's one that is, he's most effective with you. And if he can get this one, he can get you in all these other areas. By the way, I just listed the seven deadly sins. And, uh, and if he can get you with this one, he can get any one of those seven, if not all of these seven, on you, in you, and defeat you. What do you think it might be? Anybody know? It's discouragement. It's discouragement resulting from opposition. Satan wants to produce in you a spirit of discouragement that goes unopposed in resignation and says, what's the use? I quit. I give up. Let me ask you this. Have you felt like giving up lately? Maybe in a general way as it relates to life or maybe in a specific way. In your life, maybe, maybe you felt like giving up spiritually, unanswered prayer. It's like, where are you, God? I feel like my prayers are not going any further than the ceiling. What's going on here? I'm struggling. Or maybe it's not spiritually. Maybe it's, it's uh, relationally. You just, you and your spouse or you and your friend keep circling the same old mountain. The same old problem keeps coming back up. Same problem over and over again, and you just feel like, wow, this is frustrating. Or maybe it's physically. You, you just, you're getting in good shape, and then all of a sudden you blow out your knee, or you get sick, or, or something else sets you back for, for a time. Or maybe it's financially. You, you begin to stockpile. You begin to save up. You begin to be wise with your finances, and about the time you get that stockpile up to where it needs to be, uh, you have a catastrophe that happens and you've got to drain the bank account and maybe even go into debt a little bit and it's, it's unbelievably discouraging when that happens. Or maybe it has to do with your job or your career or the school that you attend. How do you press on beyond those quitting points? That's the question we're looking at uh, today. How many would say that uh, 
by a show of hands that you have maybe in a general way or maybe there's a specific area of your life you're a bit discouraged or maybe you're heading in that direction of being discouraged. Show of hands, show of hands. Yeah, wow. A lot of people, just like in the first service. My wife was uh, sharing with me a couple days ago an e-card, and the e-card read this. I used to hit the gym when I was stressed. Now I just hit the person who caused the stress. It makes me feel much better. And she read that to me. I don't know why she was reading that to me. Maybe she was setting me up. But uh, we're going to give you a little bit better solution than that. I, don't can't, I can't really give you a, a biblical verse to back that point up here this morning. But l- let me take you to a, a set of verses, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll dive into our text. But as kind of, the, kind of the foundation of where we're going this morning, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9, should be up on the screen behind me. But it says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What are the jars of clay there? A rock band? No. It's, it's who, are the, who are the jars of clay? We are. How many were thinking we are? How many are feeling more and more like a jar of clay every morning when you get up as the older that you get? Yeah, that's, that's the point. That's the point. We're, they're like jars of clay, very fragile, and yet it says we have this treasure. Who's the treasure? It's Jesus. It's God, Christ in us. Now listen to me. This is uh, one of the more important things I could tell you this morning. Everybody look up here. Jesus is the treasure worth giving up everything for. Jesus is the treasure your heart longs for, whether you realize it or not. Jesus is the treasure that will sustain you, satisfy you, strengthen you, no matter what goes down in your life. Now take a look at the rest of this verse. This is what he's saying. So we have this treasure in jars of clay... Notice what it says, to show that the surpassing power. So what he's saying is that this treasure that we have in Jesus is a surpassing power. That the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now listen to the list that he goes through. Maybe you could find yourself in this list. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because we have a treasure, a treasure in these jars of clay. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment, and then we'll read our text and unpack our notes this morning. Father God, to know you, to know you is life. To serve you is freedom. To praise you is the soul's joy and delight. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Thank you that through Christ, our treasure, we have a surpassing power to face anything. God, I pray that this morning you would encourage the discouraged. Those that raise their hands this morning, you know each one of them, you know where they are, you know their struggle. God, strengthen them. God, I pray this morning for all of us, search us, O God, and know our hearts, try us and know our thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Now, it's going to take me a few minutes to work through it. It's a phenomenal text. This is kind of part of the storyline. So they're in, in the land, rebuilding, picture of our rebuilding of our lives 
and they're going to face this opposition. I want you to hear some of the dialogue. I want you to watch Nehemiah and how he responds to the opposition. And so we begin reading verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, and it says, Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he became, or he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on, on it, he will break down their stone wall. So you got this jeering going on. I want you to note uh, Nehemiah's response. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. So he immediately goes to God and cries out to God and he says, turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captive. So he's saying, hey, let happen to them what has happened to us. So he's calling out for God's judgment, his justice upon them. He says, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. God, I know that this displeases you. God, you're you're wanting us to come back and restore what you had initially established. You want us to live in the fullness of life you have for us. And these guys are opposing it. So God, we know it goes contrary to what you have for us. Verse 6, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. So they're about halfway there. For the people had a mind to work. The word there means that they had a passion, they had a desire, they were enthusiastic about it. They had a, a vision. A vision is a picture of the future that produces passion. That's what they had to work. But note verse 7, But when Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. So now here's their second uh, kind of tactic. The first one is this cynicism and this jeering, now they're going to begin to make a threat upon their lives. They're going to threaten to beat them up, to fight them, as you can see in verse 8. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And notice what Nehemiah says once again. And we prayed to our God and we loaded our guns. No, that's not what it says, does it? They didn't have guns, but this is what they did. And we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So we prayed, and we made sure that we covered the bases, and we were protecting ourselves. It's pretty wise. Because he's going to get into more details here. He's going to tell them specific. We're going to see some of their weaponry. Verse 10, in Judah, it was said... Now, this is where you start seeing the discouragement, discouragement beginning to set in. It is said, and this is kind of part of the rumor... The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So now they've, 
they've threatened to come in and fight them, but now they're going to kill them. There's the threat of that. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, notice this, 10 times. What's that about? There's, this is the rumor mill. This is, uh, this is part of gossip, what gossip does. And so there's a, they're stirring up a lot of discord and the people are coming to them. Hey, you guys better stop doing this. They're going to come after you. So it's all part of the tactic to get them to stop. And uh, you must return to us is what they said here, verse 12, verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, notice what Nehemiah does. He just loads his weapons. I mean, he just gets more prepared. He says, hey, we got some breaches in the wall. We need to put some guards in those areas if they try to come in at us. And in the open places, I station the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I love that. That's awesome. I mean, these guys are ready. You want to fight? Come on. We'll take you on. God's called us to do this, and we're going to do it. If you guys come in here, we will defend ourselves. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials. So here's a little bit of that to locker room kind of pep talk again. He's saying, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Yeah, it's good stuff. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And then from that day, now here you get a little bit more of their strategy. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. What's coats of mail? Anybody know? It's body armor, right on. So these guys are prepared. I mean, they're, they're getting ready. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way. Now, check this out. This is really interesting. In such a way that each labored on the wall with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Got to keep it close by, that sword, that spear. I'm going to work, but I'm, I'm not... I've got to be watching out. So there's, there's a biblical principle here, and this really has a lot to do with spiritual warfare, that you better, be, you better have a, a trowel in one hand where you're building, developing, growing, and, but you better have a weapon in the other hand to protect whatever advances you're making because the enemy's coming after you. So it's one thing to be building, but are you protecting yourself against uh, your adversary? That's, that's a little bit of the idea. Let's continue reading. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. This is Nehemiah, his memoirs. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Did you hear what's going on? So when you hear the trumpet blast, let's all rally to where the trumpet is because we've got a fight on our hands. Verse 21. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until stars came out. 
from sunup to sundown. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and, by, and labor by day. And may labor by day. So neither I, so they were, they were hanging out right there within the wall. And so it says, so neither I nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guards who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They slept in their clothes. They were prepared. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So here's here where we're, we're going. Um, we're going to look at the tactics of opposition then we'll look at the effects of opposition, and then we will talk about right response to opposition. And, uh, and you know that you have opposition. If you're a Christian, welcome to opposition. I mean, you're going to have, you're going to be opposed. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be opposed. You have an adversary. In fact, you might be familiar with this. We taught it back uh, a couple months back when we were going through the book of Ephesians. It's the best spiritual warfare uh, text in the New Testament. Anybody know what it is? It's Ephesians chapter 6. And in there it says, Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then in verse 12 it says something like this, For we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood. Wait a minute, they're wrestling against flesh and blood. But he's saying we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But they're wrestling against flesh and blood. Okay, here's the point. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of forces. Here's the point. Behind the scenes, aggravating the flesh and blood evil, behind the scenes, aggravating the flesh and blood evil is something that is not flesh and blood. It's spiritual. Now, there's a couple responses you can go you can go, oh, come on. you got to be kidding. Woohoo, boogeyman. And guess what? Uh, he's got you. If he can get you to kind of downplay his existence, he's got you. If you're preoccupied and paranoid about his existence, he's got you. You've got to be prepared. You don't need to be frightened. The Bible gives us, you know, our weaponry, our arsenal. We've got the treasure within us, that surpassing power and uh, we need to keep that in mind. But this is what you need to keep in mind, though, as we, as we walk through this. Unbelievers, people that don't know Jesus, aren't the enemy. But captives, puppets, pawns of the enemy. The enemy is using these guys to prevent God's people from building. And you've got to make that distinction. Otherwise, you'll turn it into good guys, bad guys. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We're going to wipe out all the bad guys. Wait, 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 wait. No, there's only one good guy. It's Jesus. The rest are bad guys. And we're in the bad guy mixed, okay? That's just part of it. But he rescued us, and he's redeemed us, and he wants to use us to help them to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so it's part of our responsibility to kind of help point them to Jesus. And so our response to them is really critical that we, the Bible says, we love our enemies. And yeah, we're, we're going to talk about defense and, and we need to defend ourselves against opposition and that's all appropriate, but there's an appropriate way to do that. But our goal ultimately would, would be to win them in that. Now, it tells us First Peter chapter 5 verse 8 be self-controlled and alert your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. First part of John 10, 10. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Let me give you the three tactics here. Here's the first tactic. Now, if you're not a believer, we're glad you're here. 
We're excited that you're here. We're glad that you're here just kicking the tires. You're trying to check this out. You're trying to figure out what this Jesus thing is all about. And, and you need to know that this is a safe place to do that. If you're a believer, the moment you made a confession of faith, uh, there's nothing that bothers our adversary more is when you begin to take Jesus seriously. And if he can't keep you from making a confession of faith in Jesus, he will, he will hurt you and harass you and hassle you in the rebuilding process as God is rebuilding the brokenness in your own life so that you can experience the wholeness, the holiness that God has for you so that you can put on display the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll do whatever he can to prevent that. This is how he works. Now, he can work spiritually, or he can work through people that are closest to you by using these tactics. Here's the first one. Criticism. And I don't need to reread the first three verses, but I mean, you could hear the sneering. Verses one through three. And he's doing that because he wants to humiliate you. Now, here's the interesting thing about... Um, when you study Genesis, creation story, Genesis chapter one, chapter two, you got Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed. Total openness and honesty and transparency. Why was that? It was because they were living in the very presence and approval of God. They had no shame. And then immediately you see something take place in chapter three is that when they kind of push away from God and do their own thing, you guys notice what they do? Immediate shame comes over them and then they're putting on the fig leaves. And that's kind of the natural response. That's how we live. We, we wear fig leaves. We, we wear things. We, we try to project an image that we're not. We try to boost ourselves to make us look bigger, better, prettier than what we really are. Why? Because shame. Shame drives that. Shame drives addictions. Shame drives OCD behavior. It's because we're, we're shamed. We don't have that sense of the presence and the approval of God and that we desperately long for and we need. Jesus is the treasure our hearts long for. Because in that, there's no more shame. We're open and honest about our life. No more mask wearing. No more game playing. And so you, you begin to see that. But how did he get them to that place? Is that he uses, the enemy uses, his tactic was really criticism. He was trying to humiliate them. And, and in verse, in chapter 3 of Genesis, he uses, actually, he doesn't use strong arguments against Adam and Eve. He creates an atmosphere of sneering. Major difference. He sneers and he says, did God really say? You can't trust what God says. You can't trust this book. <laughs> That's crazy. You believe this? God doesn't have your best interest at heart. You're going to find greater life apart from God. He's holding back that tree of knowledge and good, of knowledge of the good and evil because he knows that when you eat of that tree, you're going to be just like him. It was all sneering. No arguments. An atmosphere. Did you know that um, research tells us that 80% of our kids, Christian kids, who go to college defect from the faith? 80%. You, know, you want to know why? It's not because of strong arguments that would undermine the validity and the veracity of the Christian faith. But it's because of an atmosphere of sneering. And it's because our kids don't know what, what they believe and they don't know why they believe what they believe. Therefore, they don't have a good rock-solid foundation so that when they're in a class with a prof and a group of people that are sneering at them saying, you believe that? That's ridiculous. Jesus? Oh, that's a figment of your imagination. Anna, yeah, I believe in Santa Claus too. 
And the Easter bunny, he's right there with him. So that kind of sneering can certainly bring a bit of humiliation unless you know. Unless you know what you believe and know why you believe what you believe. We're going to do a teaching series starting Easter that's going to deal with a lot of those real tough questions as it relates to what kind of strong arguments, just phenomenal arguments for Christianity, for Christ, for the Scriptures. Is the Bible reliable? Is, you know, did Jesus really exist? What about these other books that they claim that are Scripture that dispute what the Bible says? We're going to walk through that. We're going to spend a considerable amount of time doing that. But, but that's part of his approach. And... If you don't have a good, solid foundation for your faith, you will not be able to endure the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. That's tactic one. Tactic two is that he begins to threaten their lives. Verses 6 through 8, we saw that because he wants to intimidate. Now, most of us, you know, I don't know. If I were to ask you, does death frighten you? You're going to die. Most of us don't really give it much thought until we have a close brush with it or we lose someone close to us. Then we start thinking about it, and it kind of stirs us up a bit. And I would say that the majority of people are afraid to die. We just medicate ourselves. We kind of put it off. We don't think about it much. We don't want to talk about it, but you're going to die. How does that make you feel? The enemy wants you to be frightened. He wants you to be frightened. Here's what the Bible says. It tells us in the... Uh, in uh, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is what? It's a game. Are you kidding? You don't have to be intimidated by that. But there's another thing that the enemy does too in, in our minds and our hearts. And, um, and that is he, he comes after us. And I, I was kind of talking more kind of physically there, fear of death. But he comes at us spiritually comes at us spiritually because I've heard it like this. I've heard people say, okay, yeah, 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 I know. I need to follow Jesus, but I'm going to wait and have a little fun first before I follow him. How many have ever heard that before? Okay, there's quite a number of people. Isn't that interesting? They don't know Jesus. They really don't know Jesus. It'd be questionable whether they've actually ever encountered him. If Jesus is the treasure your heart longs for, if when I said that earlier and something didn't resonate within you, maybe you've never really encountered him. And when someone says, I'm going to go have a little fun before I follow Jesus, C.S. Lewis said it's kind of like a kid wanting to play in a mud puddle when there's a Caribbean cruise waiting for him. He says, it doesn't make sense. He says, it doesn't make any sense. You obviously don't, don't know Jesus. But that's, that's, part of, that's part of the... He threatens us. He gets us to believe that, hey, you're not going to find life there. Sunday morning, church, reading the Bible. Come on, singing happy songs about Jesus. <laughs> I'd make a pretty good devil, wouldn't I? But, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, that's what he tries to do. To think that, yeah, come on, live a little. You owe it to yourself. You deserve it. You heard that language before? I mean, it's rampant in American society. It's all about you. He's reinforcing fundamentally what's wrong with all of us, self-absorption. But that's part of his work. So it goes from criticism to kind of threatening our lives to the next one, third tactic, is gossip. To exaggerate. He exaggerates the circumstances or opposition. We'll talk a little bit more. Let me, let me talk a little bit about gossip. Gossip is really destructive. Gossip, rumors, 
Gossip is passing on negative information about someone to someone else who is neither part of the problem or part of the solution. I mean, we've been ripped off by gossip here at Desert Breeze. Years ago, back in 2001, uh, there was so much gossip and rumors floating around. We had about 100 people leave, most of which left from gossip. The few that did decide to come and talk to any of the leadership, they continued to hang with us. And a lot of that, that fog was cleared away. It's very destructive. But here's how gossip works. Let's just say that, that I offend you. I offend you. Instead of you coming to me and talking to me and us working it out, you go and call your friend up. Pastor Ray... He offended me. Or you get together with them over coffee at Starbucks. He goes, can you believe that he did this? And the person responds, which would be inappropriate for them to respond like this. He did? Well, he did the same thing for me. To me, I just... And so, they, so you start your own little small group where you can beat up on Pastor Ray. And we'll go find out who else he's done this to. That's called triangulating. It's triangulating. What it does is that... You've been offended rather than to go to talk to that person, as it says in Matthew 18, or you are the offender. Matthew 5 makes that clear that you go and talk with them, whether you're the offended or the offender. You go and make that right rather than to try to draw somebody in to rally support uh, for your cause. The Bible says it's wrong, it's destructive. That's what we see happening. Did you notice where it said... It it was kind of interesting because it used this idea in verse 12. It says, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us 10 times. That's rumor. That's gossip. To exaggerate the circumstances of opposition. Triangulating. We're going to talk more about it next week, actually. We're going to talk about conflict in relationships, how to work through conflict. And so the next chapter as we work through that is going to give us some really good insight on relational conflict. But this is how the enemy works. So he brings criticism to humiliate. He threatens our lives to intimidate and then gossip to exaggerate. And and what our adversary wants is that he wants you to either have a false sense of security, like I don't need God. That's a false sense of security. I don't need God. I don't need church. I don't need... uh, that's a false sense of security. That's part of what he does. But, but here what he's doing here is he gives us a false sense of insecurity. God isn't big or good enough. God isn't big enough for your problem. And so you become overwhelmed by that. So the tactics, tactics of opposition. By the way, a few weeks ago we talked about our adversary and how he comes at us. He accuses, tempts, and, and, and lies. And you can see how it fits into each of these. Uh, He accuses criticism. He tempts us, life-threatened. He lies, this gossip. So so what are the effects of this opposition? Take a look at the next. We talked about it, discouragement. It's it's one of his main tools. If he can work this in you, you're ready to throw in the towel, give it up, call it quits, tap out. So when does this usually occur? It usually occurs about halfway through the project because of misplaced hope. Because of misplaced hope. Now, let me read some verses to you. You can see in verse 6, they were about halfway through the project when this discouragement begins to creep into their lives. Here's a number of verses. You can underline them as as I read them, and we'll talk about them. But misplaced hope. Here's how hope works in our lives. Is that if I have certain expectations, whether they be marriage expectations or job expectations or church expectations family expectations with kids and how they turn out. Let's just say that they're like real high. They're, I've got high expectations for my kids or family, but then life experience comes in down here way below that. 
So you got high expectations, life experience. What's this gap called? Discouragement. Disillusionment. Despondency. Depression. So if you have these expectations and then life experience comes in below that, you've got discouragement. Now let me read some verses here to you. I think will kind of help us to unpack this. Proverbs 3.12, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So if you have expectations and it doesn't follow through, it's going to give you a sick heart, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Proverbs 15.13, A glad heart makes a, a cheerful face. But by sorrow the heart, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. Let me define that word spirit. Here's what spirit means. Uh, spirit is the uh, Hebrew. It means wind, force, power, energy. It is passion to live, or that which propels us into life to take on life. So a crushed spirit is to have very little desire for life. Let me read the next verse, Proverbs eighteen fourteen. A man's spirit will endure sickness. So if you have energy, excitement about life, enthusiasm, vision, so a man's spirit will endure sickness. So the worst of worst case scenarios, you can endure it, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? A crushed spirit is to have very little desire for life. It's, it's depression. It's despondency. It's discouragement. Life hasn't kind of panned out the way I thought it would go. It hasn't gone anywhere close to where I was hoping. So it creates that discouragement. Psalm 42, 11. The psalmist puts it this way, and he's kind of working through this. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So think about this. If you build your hope on your career, on your job, on your family, on your finances, more so than God, you're going to be disappointed. It's just a matter of time. And so when you face that disappointment, it gives opportunity to, to kind of uh, to reestablish your hope in God. See, see, becoming a Christian is not saying a correct prayer. It's not, you know... Uh, Putting your name and saying, "Hey, I committed Jesus, uh, committed my life to Jesus," and putting it, you know, and putting, dropping it in the box. It's it's more than that. It's more than getting dunked in a ta- tank. It's more than walking the aisle. It's it's making Jesus the faith, hope, and love of your life. And and when that's true, then everything else becomes secondary in your life and gives you that ability to sustain the hits that we, that we take in life. So take a look at this. Here's your next film. So discouragement causes us to lose our... Here's the, some things, and this is evidence of discouragement in our lives. This is evidence of misplaced hope. Strength. So discouragement causes us to lose our strength. Did you notice verse 10? First part of verse 10, it says strength is failing. And then vision... There is too much rubble. We become over, overwhelmed with life. There's too much, man. I can't get through this. That's the second part of verse 10. And then we lose our confidence. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. That's the last part of verse 10. And then verse 11. And then we lose security. There's an insecurity that begins to take place. Enemies will kill us. Now, you need to know that the sweet spot... The opposite of living, this is all the opposite of living in the sweet spot of God's grace. So the sweet spot of God's grace, when you put your hope in God, when he's the treasure in your life, you have strength 
You have vision, you have confidence, you have security. So that brings us now to the, next, to the last part of this is, okay, so what's my right response? How do I, so if, if that's true about me, I, I lack strength, vision, confidence, security. We'll give you opportunity now to put your hope in God. What does that mean? The right response to opposition. What do you do when you're under attack, when you feel discouraged, disillusioned, and despondent? You've got to, first of all, recalibrate your identity in Christ through prayer. You recalibrate your identity in Christ through prayer. We all have an identity. We all build our identity on something, and it's important to build your identity on Jesus. You see that in verse 4. Did you notice what he did immediately when they're sneering at him? Oh, our, oh, our God. He cries out. We see it also in verse 9. Here's the incredible thing about if your identity is in Christ. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions here in a minute to find out if you really do have your identity anchored in Christ. And you'll be able to kind of tell. But, uh, but if your identity is anchored in Christ, and that's what it means, um, if you have his acceptance, if you understand what he's done for you on the cross, if you understand that the God of the galaxies came to this earth to reveal to you the Father, and he died because you were eternally separated from God, you were, you were heading to an eternity of eternal separation. Complete and total separation from God. And Jesus stepped in and took your place and died for you and wiped your slate clean. No more sins held against you. And not only that, he indwells you and empowers you so that no matter what you face, you can overcome those issues. He's done that for us. And then our future is secure in him. If you understand that, think about it when someone criticizes us. Someone criticizes us at work or in our home. We've got friends that criticize us. How do you respond to criticism? Are you good with criticism? How many would say they're a lot like Pastor Ray? Doesn't do so well with criticism at times, huh? Show of hands? Yeah. Most of us. I, I don't like to know that I did a bad job or what my job was didn't kind of meet the standards or somebody didn't like the way I did this or that they didn't like my attitude or they didn't like this or that or, or any number of things. Nobody likes that, but listen to me. If your identity is anchored in the cross, you're not only going to be able to uh, endure that criticism, you're going to invite it. Because if you realize that through the cross, I am more sinful than I ever dared to think, I was so sinful Jesus had to die for me, there's going to be humility. You had to admit, you had to admit your shortcomings to come to Christ, and so you're going to still have those shortcomings. If you're going to get over those, you're going to be able to still admit those and say, hey, yeah, you know what, you're probably right. So you're going to open. Do you see anything else in my life where I may be falling short? I want to change that. I don't want to misrepresent who Jesus is in me. See, that's, that would be healthy Christianity. Are you open to criticism? How about when you give criticism, are you able to do it in love? Are you like a bull in a china closet? I'm going to set them straight. Well, that tells me you're not finding your sense of identity. At that time, you need to recalibrate your identity in Christ because you ought to be able to speak the truth in love. And you can be assertive in that. And so, if you have the acceptance of the only one in the universe that counts, God, then you can handle criticism without blowing up or melting down. You can tell, too, when you need to uh, recalibrate your identity in Christ, not just through criticism, but success and failure. I mean, by the way, let's, just, let's talk about uh, criticism again. If you, if you tend to get puffed up, 
If praise inflates you, guess what? Criticism will deflate you. So how do you, how do you deal with that? But here's also success and failure, good day, bad day, praise and criticism. How do you deal with any of those? If you have his, his approval and his presence, you can, you can handle any of that. It's pretty much inconsequential and insignificant. It doesn't carry the weight that it used to. So, recalibrate your identity in Christ through prayer. Here's the next one. Reinforce your weak points and establish a rallying point. Reestablish a rallying point. So, reinforce the weak points. Did you notice what they did? When they recognized that these guys are coming after them, they said, hey, you know what? We need to build the wall up around here. We need to put a guard at this place in the wall. So, let's talk about discouragement here. You need to understand that discouragement has... Uh, many roots. And so because we are multidimensional image bearers of God, there's body, soul, and spirit. There's different aspects to this discouragement. And so there would be a physical aspect to discouragement. That I find myself more prone to discouragement when I don't get enough rest. How many have found that to be true? Yeah, I'm like, I'm right on edge. If I don't get enough sleep, if I'm not eating right, if I'm a little bit under the weather, boy, that, that already. So, so that's, that would be a breach in the wall. That would be a place where you need to set a guard. I mean, I have to be, you know, when I'm feeling a little bit tired, more fatigued, you know, you you got kids in the house, they could push you right over the edge at those times. So even more so, you have to be that much more guarded. How about emotionally? How many would say that having friends in your life is really, really important? Okay, unless you're a psychopath. I mean, really, that's what psychopaths withdraw and isolate. And people, they, they tend to, they tend to kind of, they, they, uh, the Unabomber years ago, you know, the guy that, uh, he was out there all alone, out in the forest by himself. That's psychotic. You need to have people around you. You need to have friends. And so that's a dimension. You need to have people in your life that are around you, supporting you, encouraging you. And then there's a spiritual element. There's a truth element that you need to be in a place where you're hearing truth to dispel the lies, the accusations, the temptations of the enemy, that you can push those to the side and say, hey, wait, 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 wait. I know what the Bible says. That's wrong. And that way you're not led astray. You're not overcome by what the enemy is trying to do as he tries to, tries to deceive you. And so discouragement has many roots. Keep in mind, so that's reinforce the weak points, but establish a rallying point. What does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, did you notice, what, I, I made emphasis to verse 17. It says, the, I talked about having a, a, a trowel and a sword in hand. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great American preacher, mid-1800s, he actually had a magazine. It was by that title, The Sword and the Trowel. And it, it really speaks of this idea that I need to not only be making progress in my life and growing, but I need to be defending uh, every bit of the progress that I'm making. Let me give you an illustration of that, what I'm talking about. So you sign up for the marriage class with the Trucellas. You sign up for their marriage class. Guess what? You've entered into opposition. You have an adversary that will do everything he can to keep you even from going to the class. And even while you're going to the class, you probably have more problems happen within that marriage relationship than ever before. And even if you do make advances, then you need to protect those advances because two weeks after the class is all over, you might find yourself going right back to the old patterns again. That's what he's talking about. So what are you doing as it relates to spiritual disciplines to make those advances? And then how are you protecting that against the adversary? And here's the last thing, establishing a rallying point. He says, where you hear the sound of the trumpet, 
Rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Where do you rally for help? Who are the folks that you can call on that will rally around you, support you, and know that, that they are in your corner, supporting you, loving you? That's what small groups is about. Here's the next one. Number three. Almost finished. Refuse to retaliate, but take appropriate actions to protect yourself and others from harm. Let me deal with that second part, first of all. Take appropriate actions to protect yourself and others. It kind of talks a little bit. We kind of get a little bit of the, that idea of Second Amendment rights here, don't you? Did you guys kind of get that feel a little bit? Maybe it's just me. But he's, 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 like, he's like saying, hey, you know what? You need to protect yourself. And uh, I know that we've, we have helped people and protected people. And, and if you're in an abusive situation, you need to get out of that situation. We will help you to get out of there. You need to get a court order of protection. If you're under attack, you better be calling 911. And you need to do all those things. You need to do what is necessary to protect. That's what they're doing here. They're protecting themselves. But let me, uh, let me go back to the first. Refuse to retaliate. Refuse to retaliate. And Romans 12 makes that very clear. When you try to get payment through revenge, the evil does not disappear. Instead, it spreads. Most tragically of all into you do not become like the evil that is being done to you overcome evil with good now that's that's a hard balance the, the bible's saying hey you need to protect yourself so pastor ray are you into preemptive strikes drone strikes and uh, yes, I am. Get them before they get us. And I'm kind of, I, I kind of think that's all part of the protection. That's up to our government. The Bible says a lot about that in Romans 13. But, but I think you need to protect yourself. But we're not talking about retaliation. We're talking about protection. And I think that's uh, certainly honorable to God. It's all part of Scripture. It's important. But not retaliation. Don't become like the evil that is being done to you. Overcome evil with good. This is what I found that oftentimes when people can't let it go and they have a hard time forgiving someone that has been a perpetrator in their life is that they don't understand. And I get a glimpse of this in Nehemiah where Nehemiah is really turning this over to God. Immediately he turns it over to God. God, you're a just God. God, you get them. God, you take care of them. The more you realize that nobody gets away with anything before our holy, righteous God the more you will pity your perpetrators if they don't repent. I mean, you get a hint here of, of Nehemiah saying, God, you see what they're doing? See what they're doing? You'll get them. In fact, can we watch? I mean, have you ever felt like that? It's like, they were mean to me. But God, you know what? You're the judge. Vengeance is yours. In fact, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's what he's, he's talking about. He says, I got you covered. And when you understand that they're in the hands of the living God, you will pity them. You will pity them. I, was, uh, I remembered a, a statement that stayed with me. I think it was Clint Eastwood, Charles Bronson, one of these tough guy movies. And the guy said this in the movie. He said, it's God's job to settle the score. It's my job to arrange the meeting. <laughs> yeah. That's good, huh? Okay, it's not your job to arrange the meeting, though, right now. So be careful about that whole retaliation. I think this guy was a good guy that said that, and he was just trying to clean the streets up, and these guys were pretty messed up. But, uh, but that's that. Okay, so refuse to retaliate, but take appropriate actions to protect yourself and others from harm. Here's the next one, number four. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. That's what he says. 
Now, here's a question for you. This is where we're going to wrap it up. What is the most, and I, I taught this to you uh, a few months back, what is the most frequent command in the Bible? What is the most frequent promise in the Bible? First of all, what is the most frequent command in the Bible? Yell it out to me. Anybody know? Okay, let me, let me, let me teach you again. The most frequent command in the Bible is fear not. The most frequent promise in the Bible, I will be with you. Awesome! That's incredible. That's what he's saying here. Did you notice verse 14? Don't be afraid. God is with you. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. How many of you have ever been around uh, where lightning struck real close to you? Anybody? Show of hands. Did you wet your pants? How many would say that was really frightening? Oh my goodness. You know, the lights and the, wow, that was loud. I think I did wet my pants. And it was like, wow, that's overwhelming. If something in creation can be that frightful, how much more would the creator be frightful? And that's why he's he's saying, our great and all, that's the idea here. Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea how big and great and awesome God is? I mean, We are afraid because we don't realize how great and awesome God is. Whenever you are terribly anxious, angry, or depressed, it's because at that moment, you've forgotten who the God of the Bible is or you've never really known him. Let's remember who he is. Our God, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. The most frequent command in the Bible, don't be afraid. The most frequent promise in the Bible, I'll be with you. Stand with us. Let's read this verse. They're going to lead us in this song as we conclude our time here this morning. Joshua 1.8. This is what God told Joshua and the whole group before they were going into the promised land. Let's read this, this verse together aloud. You guys ready? Here we go. Nice and loud. One, two, three. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Remember, the, the most frequent command in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The most frequent promise in the Bible. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. In Jesus' name, let's sing this to our Savior and King.